This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Apparently nothing private about this big deal that may be happening. You heard Doug mention it. KKR making a run at Walgreens. It would be the biggest LBO ever. Let's get into what it would mean for the company, what it would mean for the private equity industry. Jonathan Palmer here with us in New York City, senior healthcare analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. That is our research arm here at Bloomberg. And Heather Pearlberg, private equity reporter for Bloomberg. She's in our 99.1 studio in DC. So Heather, I want to start with you. What's the news here in the sense that you've got a well-known firm going after a big well-known company and they sort of know each other already. Remind us what's happening. So these guys do have a long-standing relationship, and KKR, what's important for them, they're building out parts of their business to look at other opportunities because there aren't a lot of big deals like this. So being able to do a, a transaction with a company like this would be putting a lot of their money to work in a way that others are looking to do. Jonathan, the reaction piece you guys titled after the news was, Walgreens leveraged buyout, not a panacea for what ails it. Could you say that you're a bit skeptical that a buyout would actually help the underpinnings and the fundamentals of what's going on at Walgreens right now? That's exactly right. I mean, at the end of the day, the the structural headwinds that Walgreens is facing just don't go away overnight just because they take themselves private. So reimbursement in the pharmacy industry is under pressure. Uh, both here and abroad because, you know, Walgreens also has their boots assets in Europe. So there's a lot of things that they're facing that being private just doesn't solve the problem. And so, Heather, why private equity? So setting aside KKR for a second, why does this make sense as a private equity deal given the size, both from the perspective of this industry and this company, but also some of the levers, pun intended, that would have to be pulled here? Well, there aren't a lot of people who could do this deal, so instantly the kind of mass of players is limited to only a few. KKR has the money. Others did too and looked at it and decided against it. But once they take the company out of the public spotlight, they could do lots of things, restructuring, different things that wouldn't be in the public eye. But then again, you run into a situation like Toys R Us where there aren't always good things that happen. Right. Well, and and Heather, I do want to press you on one point. Like they have the money sort of like, I mean, in the <laughs> right, sense right, that they right. would they're have borrowing to, a lot of it. They're borrowing a lot of it. And presumably even on the equity side, would they likely need to partner with someone to write that equity check? They had in the past, and on the other deal they'd done that was the largest was uh, with TPG at TXU. So yeah, there's certainly an opportunity for partnership and that could come up as well. So we know Walgreens has doubled down on retail. When you Mm -hmm. think of what different retailers in the space or different farmers like different companies in the space have done what is it then that Walgreens could actually do Jonathan to actually right the ship I mean the shares have really taken a beat down lately I think that's the question everybody's asking I mean the mechanics of this deal are complicated right there's the size there's the CEO's ownership he owns 16 percent of the company you know what does he do with that nine billion dollars of equity but you know getting back to the fundamentals 
at the end of the day, they're stuck here. And, you know, I think when Stefano got came on board a couple of years ago, they thought was he's a deal guy. He's going to be a big he's going to do a big deal. And it never materialized. So Walgreens is pursuing this partnership motif. And I think a lot of people would be uh, more enthused if they were pursuing a bigger deal, like something like CVS just did with an insurer, mm-hmm. and really, you know, have a vertically integrated company. But that's not been the strategy so far, and so we don't really know what this does for them from that perspective. Because you know, does being private help them maybe in that negotiation? Mm-hmm. I mean, we mentioned restructurings, but they've been cutting costs like crazy ever since this deal with uh, Boots in 2015. Well, one so, of the things KKR does bring is healthcare experience, right. right? I mean, they've done this huge Envision deal. It's been all over the news because of the politics in D.C., but they do have a top people in that space that might be able to come up with innovative ideas they haven't already thought of. All right. So, Heather, I have to ask you, especially because you mentioned D.C., to me, the optics of a massive private equity deal in the healthcare space <laughs> in the teeth of the 2020 election where Elizabeth Warren and others have already set their sights on this industry i mean chutzpah i mean oh, what is this like quite this the time is pretty certainly, amazing right? certainly yeah they i would be a little nervous if i were them i mean they have this whole surprise medical billing thing going on that people are not taking lightly and here's another area they could be you know, accused of exerting influence in ways that you know, profits over patients. So we'll see. Heather, do we have any sense of the odds that this deal actually gets done? That I don't know. I think there's a lot of things happening behind closed doors that will take a little while for us to see out here. And Jonathan, from a regulatory perspective, hurdles here? I don't think so. I mean, the interesting thing to me is that it seems like every other year we hear about Walgreens doing some sort of big deal. Maybe this will be the one that actually crosses the finish line. But I don't have a good gauge to to actually know whether that's going to happen or not. Yeah. All right. Well, we know we're going to have a lot of fun watching it. We really appreciate the context from both of you. Jonathan Palmer is Senior Healthcare Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Heather Perlberg, PE reporter extraordinaire for Bloomberg down in the nation's capital, our 99.1 studio there. All right, well, you can't go wrong with little uh, Queen B here on a Monday. We're talking about Singles Day. Got the perfect guy to talk to it, Kevin. Talk about it with us, Kevin Carter, founder of EMQQ. It's an emerging markets internet and e-commerce ETF. He knows all about e-commerce, all about Singles Day. He's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio today, usually based out in San Francisco. Great to have you with us. Great to be here. All right. So we talked a little bit about the origins of Singles Day, but remind us of the size and scope that we're talking about here. Well, the size this year, at least, uh, for Alibaba was $38 billion plus, which is, I think... In one day. In one day. In 24 hours. Unbelievable. Yeah, I don't know the number, but it's it's more revenue than a significant percentage of the companies in the S&P 500 doing yeah. the entire year. And so what's the... What's the hook? I mean, it's like for for people who aren't as familiar with it, it's like Prime Day to to some it, extent, it, right? It, it is, but it's that on steroids. And yeah. it actually it it originated at Nanjing University, and as you said, it was like Valentine's Day for single people, which seems like a it ought to exist here. Treat yeah. yourself. It would be maybe be more fun even. But treat uh, yourself day. Yeah, yeah exactly. but uh, yeah, it was treat yourself and. Uh, uh, Daniel Zhang at uh, Alibaba was, you know, one of the first to sort of capital get Alibaba to capitalize on it, and now it's become quite a big thing. And 
e-commerce in China and the developing world is even bigger than it is here because in the developing world, they didn't have bank accounts. The, the traditional consumption infrastructure didn't exist previously. So all these billions of consumers are becoming consumers with a smartphone in their pocket and, and leapfrogging. And so it's just a bigger thing. There's been a lot of talk about a slowing economy in China. You look at numbers like this, and that doesn't necessarily scream that there is an issue. Is it that e-commerce is relatively isolated and it's such a a big deal and a go-to? Well, I think it's a little of both. I mean, I think the the fact that China's GDP growth in in broadly is slowing, that's not really news. I mean, that's been going on for 15 years. It was Mm -hmm. pretty well documented. It wasn't going to keep growing at 11 or 12%. But the retail sales number... Uh, has always been strong, still you know, close to 10%. And and again, it's this leapfrogging. I mean, this is a secular trend. You have, you know, in the case of China, a, a billion uh, and, you know, call it 300 million people that are becoming consumers and they, they don't have Target stores, they don't have SUVs to drive to the store, they don't have bank accounts. And so uh, they want stuff, they want more and better food, clothing, appliances, vacations, and uh, and now they have a smartphone, and that's how they're choosing to get those things. Well, and so tell us about how a company like Alibaba specifically may or may not be affected by the trade war. Because usually when we're talking about China these days, it feels like we're either talking about, as Sarah said, an economic slowdown, protests in Hong Kong, or trade war. Alibaba, in many ways, feels like it's kind of if not floating above, maybe not as susceptible to some of these things. Well, the trade war and tariffs and so forth, I mean, that's really about agricultural products and manufactured goods. Uh, The EMQQ story, the Alibaba story, this is about the billions of consumers that want stuff. And and so it it is isolated. I mean, the the fundamentals of the story should have, um, uh, should be very um, little impact from the trade wars and the tariffs. I mean, uh, you know, this is about tens of thousands of people this hour in India and Africa, in Western China, that will get their first ever computer, yeah. and it'll be a you know fifty dollar Android based smartphone, and they're going to go home tonight, and they're going to connect with their friends, they're going to watch movies, and again, they don't have the TV stations, they don't have all the things that we think of, uh, and so it's just a leapfrogging, and I think it's is a secular story that's largely insulated from the trade war. I took a look at some of the performance numbers. I see your fund EMQQ for the year is up about 26%. That's more than the S&P 500. And if you look at China, MSCI China, for example, is up just about 12% or so. When you look at the outperformance, is it more so a play on e-commerce or is it more so a play on emerging markets at large? It's a play on both. I mean, really, the EMQQ is a combination of three mega trends. The emerging market consumer, right? 85% of the world's people moving on up and wanting stuff. That's the first trend. The second one is the computer, right? Now, we've had computers for a long time. Now we have them in our pocket. Most of the world will never have a computer the way we think of it. And then the third thing is the internet. We take the internet for granted. We've had dial-up telephone access. So the world is getting their first computer uh, their first internet access as they're becoming consumers. And it, it really is, I think, the fastest growing sector in the world. And it's not just China. China's obviously the biggest part of the, the market, but uh, I think our best performing stock this year has been Mercado Libre, which trades on the NASDAQ, MELI, which is the e-commerce and payments leader from Mexico to right. Brazil and everywhere in between. So the whole world's getting smartphones. And again, because they've never had bank accounts and other forms of traditional consumption infrastructure, they're leapfrogging 
which explains the growth rates. All right. Well, great context as always. Really appreciate you making the trip all the way across the country. I'm sure you did it just for us. Kevin Carter, <laughs> founder of EMQQ, based out in San Francisco, here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio today, talking Alibaba, emerging markets, e-commerce, and much more. Let's talk a little bit. We've uh, mentioned it a few times. The protests in Hong Kong, it's an ongoing story. I want to understand the impact on the markets and trade negotiations between the U.S. and China. To help us break that down, Peter Cheer, head of macro strategy for Academy Securities. He joins us on the phone from New Canaan, Connecticut. And retired Marine Lieutenant General Robert Walsh. He is an advisory board member of Academy Securities. He's on the phone from Northern Virginia. Gentlemen, Thanks so much for joining Sarah and myself. Peter, uh, welcome back to the show. want to ask you, give us some context here. How should we be thinking about these protests, especially because they show no signs of letting up? You know, I think our view, and General Walsh can add to that, has been that China and Hong Kong are going to be at odds for a period of time. The two uh, you know, systems, one country, is going to be fraught with some issues. We don't think, though, it's going to be enough unless China really escalates to derail trade talks. I think it's a given that this is going on, and both sides probably need a trade truce at the very least, so we progress with that. So I think this is going to be a buy-the-dip type opportunity, and stocks will be wrong, and we can rally from here. General Walsh, expand on that. Give us an idea of the time frame of this. When you have a conflict of the sort that we are seeing evolve in Hong Kong right now, how can you know or are there any hints you can take to get an idea of when things might actually be turning uh, to the upside? You know, as far as the, uh, the way the protests have gone, you have to look back. This has been going on since back in late April with them peaking in June and August. So this has been continuing. And I think if uh, you look at the long-term view of the, uh, the central government in China, they are not willing to uh, risk their long-term gains and how they're progressing globally with their long-term strategy with any short-term effects that may be gone, going on in, in Hong Kong. So, therefore, you haven't seen any overt crackdown of what's going on, and they've been allowing the Hong Kong government to sort of deal with the protesters that they ha- have been and have been dealing with that in a, in a sense, what they call a, how global norms would approach any type of protest. So I think in the short term, they're going to continue on the path, continue to pressure the Hong Kong government to do more, but they don't want to put any risk at themselves globally and along with any of the, uh, the tariff wars that have been going on with the U.S. They'd like to solve those problems and continue with their long-term strategy. So, General Walsh, I do want to ask you, going back to something that Peter said a few minutes ago, he, he sort of put out a relatively big if there around escalation. You know, overnight it felt like a little bit of escalation. And the question that keeps getting asked to me that I don't have an answer for, and I'm hoping you do, is what does escalation look like and why would it not escalate? At some point, why wouldn't the Chinese essentially say, enough. We've just had enough of this. I think it would have to get pretty bad because, like I said, it would risk their long-term strategic gains. We saw some of that in August when when there was, uh, you know, over 1.5 million protesters on the streets in August. We saw the, the Chinese military police on the borders of the province that was just outside of, Shang, uh, outside of Hong Kong you know, in mainland China. They put them on the border, kind of like a show of force. Uh, There was a lot of publicity going on about that coming from the the Chinese government, and that was showing them that the situation could get worse for the people of Hong Kong and the protesters if they didn't mind their ways. 
they've since really backed off that. You haven't really seen any threat at all of any kind of that head-beating, mm. uh, fisted approach to things. What they really have done, though, is stepped up what they're very good at, is their information campaign within mainland China and within Hong Kong to try to put, put the, the protesters looking on the, the wrong side of things as terrorists and going against any type of rule of law and putting them in the bad light by the Chinese government. Peter, when you say this could be a buy-the-dip opportunity, what exactly are you talking about? Hong Kong stocks, I see the Hang Seng still in correction territory, or are you talking emerging markets at large? Are you talking China? What exactly is the opportunity? You know, I think at this stage, it's kind of global risk assets. I think U.S. assets, European assets. I think we are headed towards a trade truce. I know there's a little bit of volatility around that. I think we've kind of hit the bottom, at least near term, of economic activity. So I think if we can get a trade truce between China and the U.S., that you know lets that global growth story kind of reinvigorate a little bit. I don't think it's going to be gangbuster growth, but there are opportunities. So whether it's emerging markets, Asia, I actually like Europe probably better than anyone to benefit from a trade truce. So I think that's what you're supposed to be doing is buying stocks and still selling treasuries. I think treasuries are very mispriced, and we're going to have much better growth than the treasury market's pricing it. And so, General Walsh, talk to me about the hot spot elsewhere in the world that you're most worried about that could have the broadest uh, economic consequence. You know, I think um, economically, I don't think there's anything quite like what we're dealing with strategically in in China. Mm. And like I said, I think that that is on the path to being solved, and both the Chinese government and the U.S. government want to solve that. You've seen comments by the administ- our administration on that. Uh, I think Brexit is obviously one that we all have to watch, and I know Peter watches that very closely and how that can play. So economically, I mean, there's a lot going on across the globe. It's a very chaotic world we're in right now. But from an economic standpoint, I guess, you know, probably if you had a point of place, it would be always – at this point, the Persian Gulf and what could go on with Iran right. and uh, the potential of the you know conflict arising there and uh, any impact on oil shipments. Yeah, and just to add to that, from a macro perspective, we are very concerned about Turkey's long-term you know trajectory that they've been pulling a little bit away from the West. They take steps back, and Turkey concerns me because they've issued a lot of foreign-dominated debt, both at the nation national level and also at the bank level, and much of that has found its way into Italian and Spanish banks. So if there was a domino-type risk, I think that could come from Turkey. We're not seeing anything you know, immediate or near-term to be careful on, but that's really high on our risk screen of this ability to have a kind of contagion effect would be Turkey. Well, and such an interesting point to make on the eve or the eve of the eve of the visit uh, of President Erdogan to meet with President Trump. We're going to hear from them on Wednesday. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Peter Cheer, head of macro strategy at Academy Securities. He joined us on the phone from New Canaan, Connecticut, and retired Marine Lieutenant General Robert Walsh uh, on this Veterans Day. Thank you so much for your service to our country. I should point out, uh, General, that you were also an instructor at Top Gun, uh, which is one of the coolest things that I've ever heard. We were out in San Diego uh, just last week. I was reminded about what an awesome movie that was, I have to say. That is so pretty It's one amazing. of the coolest jobs, I think, out there is being an instructor at Top I Gun. I can't think of anything on the top of my head that would top that. Yeah, No pun I intended, either. Top Gun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the editor of Bloomberg Businessweek, Joel Weber, he caught up with a guy who, I have to say, Sarah, it's really something when you encounter someone who has your name, who is 
arguably arguably better looking and certainly smarter. This guy's name is Jason Kelly. Uh, he runs a company called Ginkgo Bioworks. What they are doing is mind-blowing in a lot of ways. Check out part of this conversation. The, the real uh, exciting thing from my standpoint, though, is is sophisticated things, right? Like if you look inside like an apple and you look at what's going on inside the cells in that fruit, there is a level of like nanotechnology and molecular complexity that is much greater than your Apple computer, right? And so, so if you think about it, you know, that's the kind of stuff, that's where biology excels. It makes that thing for nothing, right? We don't have any way to make highly molecularly complex nanotechnology on the cheap except biology. So I think some of the first applications will be like advanced materials, electronics, you know, like, like the, the, the stuff that's coming that's gonna surprise you is gonna all be like the advanced manufacturing stuff. In addition to, it'll make food more efficiently and things like that too. But it'll be everything. So it'll be everything. It'll be everything. Everything. That was just a snippet of the conversation that Joel Weber had with Ginkgo Bioworks CEO Jason Kelly. And I have to say, this interview blew me away. It must have been cool to be having the conversation real time. I'm guessing you knew some of this in advance, but when he says an apple is more complicated than <laughs> Apple, like what? To give so Joel Weber is here, by the way. We had a um, pre-interview, um, and I I really considered having Jason Kelly interview Jason Kelly just <laughs> just to, to make everyone very confused. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, we've also had Larry Fink photograph Larry Fink yeah. for for exactly the same reason, but. What this company, Ginkgo Bioworks, which is based in Boston, is up to, there, and to be clear, this company's valued at about $4 billion already. Um, it, what they're up to is just, I, I don't know if it's mind-bending or mind-blowing, but the idea is basically like they can take a cell and basically program it to do whatever th their clients basically want. And this, this whole field is called synthetic biology. And when you talk to somebody like Jason about this space, it's like you get this little peek around the corner of like what, what's to come that you kind of come back and you're like, whoa, that was like, I'm like playing with the future here in a way that we barely understood yet. So in Ginkgo's ideal world, say it's 25 years from now, what do they imagine happening? I mean, how would they like their technology to be being used at that point in time? So they've, they've basically been quietly building a platform together. For They've actually, there's five co-founders. They've been together for 17 years already. And the whole idea here was like, let's build a platform. Let's not, we, we can't go out and like come up with all the applications by ourselves. But if we build basically a new, a new, uh, workbench that other people can use mm. then maybe we can have like just dozens upon dozens of partnerships and uh, different applications that can come from that and when you think about where some of the places it can go one would be um for instance he, he you know the apple thing was really interesting because that's way out but using food right like you could basically start growing food tomorrow effectively so he looks at something like an impossible burger and is like that's actually like a generation one version of that it's pretty crude like we put all this stuff together and it's effectively packaged meat that tastes like meat but you know it's just cobbled it's together <laughs> he's like i could just grow you a burger I and mean, you don't yeah. need the cows anymore there's no more methane gas that comes from that or you know vast swath of the heartland devoted to raising cows we can grow meat using cells right or what about leather we can actually just grow you leather 
so the applications and the disruptive potential of what he's talking about are huge. And he's basically saying, I'm not, I can't possibly come up with everything that we can do with this technology. I'm just going to put the technology out there and let others start to use it. And what, you just have to pay me a little royalty. One of the things, partner. right. And one of the things you asked him about, which I want to make sure we get to in the last minute or so is the whole idea of GMOs, mm -hmm. which everybody's like, Oh, GMOs. And he's like, cool GMOs. I'm in. Yeah. So he basically, when I challenged him on it, he's like, you know, I run a GMO company. This is all GMOs. And he's like, we, I think he really is getting to a place where as a society, we've come to sort of like almost, recognize that there's this distrust of science and he's like i as a scientist i see no reason not to use gmos and as a business person the biggest thing i'm going to say is like i trust this stuff right and i'm going to use that trust to be the the way that we talk about gmos in a different way and it's interesting because on the one hand he's making the case that this could be good for the environment i mean you could grow meat but on the other hand it seems like that could be um like a hump that you have to get over because people, they hear GMO and they get pretty yeah. freaked out so by it. He basically says biology could be this massive solution for everything. Instead of manufacturing stuff, what if we just started to grow it? Right. Right. And and you, you think when you think about where that could go, that's why Ginkgo becomes really interesting and why you should check out the interview. All right. It's a really good one. Check it out in the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week. A smarter, more handsome Jason Kelly. Who thought it was even possible? But, you know, if somebody's going to find it, it's going to be Joel Weber. He is the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. And now we have another deal coming around. In addition to the KKR Walgreens one we talked about earlier today, Liana Baker, uh, head of the deals team here at Bloomberg in our interactive U.S. broker studios to talk about OpenText buying another firm, Carbonite, in an $800 million deal. Thanks for coming in. Of course. Uh, OpenText is one of the most valuable companies in Canada, and it's swooping in to buy a Boston-based company that's fallen on harder times. Carbonite had been exploring a sale because CEO had stepped down and had done a pretty uh, bad deal for Webroot that had seen its shares like fall in half since it announced that in February. So it was looking for a solution. And so talk to us about kind of the general deal market right now. Are these the types of deals we're seeing? What is... What does this tell us about the, the broader landscape? There's been a lot of interest in cybersecurity companies. In the past few years, there's been a wave of IPOs in the space, and a lot of these companies haven't performed. Earlier this year, Carbon Black sold to VMware. Today, we broke a story on Forescout exploring a sale. So Carbonite was one of those companies trying to push a billion-dollar valuation. It hadn't really uh, done that great on its own. It really needed a partner and OpenText, which is a pretty serial acquirer, but they don't like paying top dollar. Right. So at $23 a share, they're paying a price tag that they were comfortable with. Carbonite had been trading at that level before their shares started tanking a couple months ago. I'm looking at the share reaction right now. You see OpenText shares up about two and a half percent, Carbonite up about 25%. What are investors saying about this deal? Investors seem to like it. Uh, OpenText, they know, does not overpay. This is one of their largest deals to date. A few years ago, OpenText bought Documentum from Dell. That kind of put them on the map as someone to watch in these uh, private equity auctions. So even though OpenText is a strategic company, they behave very much like a private equity firm. 
And they were competing with a lot of firms that were looking to buy this. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned the private equity angle because I do feel like we're in this moment where private equity flush with cash feels like they can buy just about anything. They're involved in every uh, major auction. And maybe we'll talk about uh, the Walgreens situation in a second. But where does private equity sort of figure into the landscape in cybersecurity and, and maybe even more broadly right now? They have a huge appetite for these assets because they throw off a lot of cash. They're really sticky. Once you bring in a cybersecurity vendor, you're likely not going to replace it unless there's something really wrong with it or there's a breach. And big corporations across the world, they just keep upping their spend on cybersecurity. So that's where private equity wants to be, where people are spending their money. So you mentioned the stickiness of these cybersecurity companies. What are the other reasons right now that cybersecurity is so in demand? Is it just the sheer scope that some of these companies have and the growth potential? There's definitely uh, changing. The technology is changing every day. Hackers are getting access to source code that made one product really viable at one point, and then it just falls out of fashion. So some of these older cybersecurity companies have kind of fallen out of favor, and there's always a new wave. I think there's like a thousand new cybersecurity companies founded every year. But how do you know what's snake oil and what's going to be your next company? FireEye Mm -hmm. is also one that we're trying to figure out who buys that. That was a hot name a few years ago, and now it's probably on the block, according to reports. All right. So let's talk a little bit. Can't have the head of the deals team here without talking about the mega deal of the moment, or potentially this approach by KKR to Walgreens. There's history there. As Sarah said, we talked about it a little bit earlier in the show. Give us a sense from where you sit of what this means in the market and what may be driving it. It's definitely historic. If it succeeds, it would be the largest uh, leverage buyout in history. So, but it's like you said, does it happen? That's the question. We reported there was a formal approach from KKR. KKR, by the way, was one of the names around Carbonite. So they have some extra money there now that they didn't <laughs> transact. But they need a lot of financing. Yeah. And what are banks willing to pony up? But we're seeing a lot of audacious things right now in M&A. Look at the Xerox HP deals. Xerox a whale, or it's a minnow trying to swallow a whale. But I think Walgreens, uh, that's just a whole other league. And deal make, we'll see. And as you point, as you very rightly point out, to me, it feels like the financing side of this is such a big question. We just, we've never, uh, the reason we haven't seen a deal of this size is, a deal of this size is really hard to pull off. Just putting all the equity and the debt together to get to, you know, 65, 70 billion is, Hard to get your head around. Investment banks are certainly looking for fees. Clearly, the IPO market didn't work out for them. So they're turning to the financing markets to really make their year. Yeah, that's a really great point. All right, Leanna Baker is the head of the deals team here in the U.S. Always good to catch up with you, your team. Just scoops after scoop after scoop. We really appreciate you taking some time. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. 
All right, it is time for the drive to the close. Alan Zafrin back with us. He is founding partner and co-CEO of IEQ Capital. He joins us on the phone from Foster City, California, there on the left coast, the best coast in many's, many folks' mind. Alan, great to have you back with us. Thank you, Jason. No holiday for you and me today, huh? No, no. The bond market is closed, but here we are uh, making a living, me, Sarah Ponzak, and you and many other people here at Bloomberg. So what do you make of this market right now? It's obviously a little bit of a light day owing to the fact that not everybody is working. Many people uh, at home honoring our veterans, which we very much appreciate. Uh, but what do you make of where we've been, call it, for the last month or so? Uh, don't read anything in today. It's just a light volume day. Right. Uh, last month, what you're seeing is the market coming to the recognition that economic data is going to turn for the positive. You're going to start seeing PMI purchasing manager indices moving upward. We've probably bottomed out this year in terms of global growth. It does not mean we're about to go up to the races with 3% real GDP growth, but fears that we were going to head towards any semblance of a recession in the U.S. are pretty much moot at this point. And as most economists know, when the Fed cuts rates, it takes about 12 months for the full impact of the rate cuts to come into the economic data. So even the Fed has cut rates by three, three times by three quarters of a percent. It looks like it's going to be a reasonably okay 2020 economically, which probably bodes pretty well for some politicians' futures. So if you believe that maybe the economy is bottoming out, that we will see a reacceleration, do you buy into this rotation that we have seen over the months where we've seen cyclicals outperform, we've seen values outperform, all of a sudden we've seen bonds come under pressure? Do you buy into this? Um, I buy into it, but only up until early next year. And then uh, we'll see. I think what will happen is when you head somewhere into the early spring of next year, the inevitable uncertainty of the looming presidential election is going to weigh on risk. And there will be a rotation back into the safer plays or at least the least volatile plays where growth is more prevalent. And so I think it's a temporary rotation. Things have gotten overextended in the large cap growth uh uh, space and with tenure treasuries down at 142 at one point, you know, we've already seen a 50 basis point move back up. So by the time you and I recognize this rotation, two thirds of it is already over. But yeah, I think it's going to persist probably through year end as long as people feel pretty good about economic prospects. That'll be fine until people begin to worry about what the implications of the outcome of the U.S. election will be. And we'll have probably six months of churning and anxiety leading up to that event. And so, Alan, as you made your way through earnings season, this most recent earnings season, what were you able to generalize or synthesize from conference calls and the numbers about how CEOs are feeling? Because we continually, I feel like here at Bloomberg, talk about this this dichotomy or, you know, maybe even the opposition of where companies are feel it, how companies are feeling and how the consumers are feeling. What, what do you make of that? Um, you know, it's hard to drive somewhere if you don't have a map, you don't know where your end point is. Yeah. So for a lot of um, CEOs, particularly those that are selling it to overseas markets, from the, the conversations I have, or at least with individuals who would speak with them directly, there's a sense that they just need to know the playing rules. It almost doesn't matter so to speak, how a phase one of a trade negotiation resolves, it just needs to be resolved. And as soon as the rules of engagement are understood, they can actually go ahead and make a longer term 
capital spending plans, which leads to actually hiring people, which leads to incomes, which leads to spending. What's remarkable is how strong the consumer has been holding up the economy, given the uncertainty. And that talks to the fact that consumers post-2008, the financial crisis, through today, have continued to be you know, somewhat cautious with respect to most of their spending and therefore are in reasonably good shape. So I think CEOs just want to know the rules of engagement. Um, and if they get those, they can operate off those. So I think uh, the sense that the economy is stable, has bottomed, I think earnings are projected, and I believe it, to grow next year much better than what happened this year. I think that's all a, a recognition that there, there will be some kind of resolution uh, in the not too, uh, not too far from now, which will allow for a better understanding what the trade rules are going forward. Given the dichotomy that you just laid out between the manufacturing sector and the consumer, there has been a lot of consensus that's been torn lately of recession versus no recession and acceleration of the economy uh, versus a further downturn. But something that has been agreed upon, it seems, is that over the next five years, returns are likely to be much more muted than they've been compared to history and certainly over the past couple of years. You look at a year like this year where we've seen many asset classes uh, climbing in unison. What do you do in an environment of that sort? Yeah, Sarah, that's, uh, that's a great question. It, but look, de facto, uh, long-term, in the long run, 10-year Treasury bonds gave you on average about a 5 or 5.5% 5 return. They're going to give you 2%. And if you should earn a 5% rate of return more than bonds to own stocks, it used to be 10%. That's probably more like seven. So what do you do? <laughs> Here's what you do. You invest as usual and you hope for the hope for the best, or you invest as usual and you settle for a, a lower rate of return. And if you don't like those two choices, then you got to take a more difficult choice. Either you cut your risk and sell now and try and be a trader, and that's got all kinds of problems because timing the market's hard and you create all kinds of taxes, or you increase your risk, but then you better be careful you, you can handle that, or you will dive into the world of alternative investments, which is an, a completely different way to approach the markets. But those are your choices. You hope, you settle for the best, you day trade, you raise your risk, or you find a different way to invest. And you have to decide which of those five choices is best suited for you as an individual. Right. Uh, good advice as always. Great to catch up with you. Alan Zafrin, founding partner and co-CEO of IEQ Capital. He joined us on the phone from Foster City, California. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.